Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm good, Mr. Paul. How's the, uh, how's the, how's the week in Barcelona, Mr. Shorty? Life is pretty good here. Heading out for a big trip next week. I'm going to be meeting you in the sky because I'll be going to see clients in uh, Paris, London, and then Toronto. So I'm going to miss you by a few days. Funnily enough, I was in Toronto yesterday. I was seeing Kevin Muir, who has hosted both you and I on the Market Huddle on the Market Huddle podcast, which was a lot of fun. Kevin is one of the better macro thinkers out there. He's a very pragmatic guy and I think does a does a fantastic job with the Market Huddle podcast, everyone. So if you need another podcast to listen to apart from this glorious one, please go and listen to the Market Huddle. Mr. Shorty, I think that we're in the midst of one of those classic bear market rallies that, as I like to say, bear market rallies that are designed to gravitate towards screwing the most people. And I think we're in the in the midst of all of this. Is there any scenario that you could see where that narrative is not correct, that there is something potentially more sustaining in the rally that we've had? Obviously, we've got oil prices continue to be elevated or to defy ground. Russia and Ukraine, I know that you wrote a little bit about that today to clients, is probably Russia is, it appears to be getting the upper hand ever so, ever so slowly, as tragic as that is. Where can that narrative about this being nothing more than a bear market rally be? Is there any scenario where that can be wrong? Yeah, the, the Fed says we made a mistake. Inflation is temporary <laughs> and we're doing a U-turn and don't, don't pay attention to what we said. We, we used severe language a few weeks ago and we're not going to tighten as much as we thought. And in fact, we might just lose it. And housing prices are fine. And I just don't think any of that's going to happen because I saw a great data point uh, today. I was reading something and th- this is the first time in like American history where the average, the median, uh, the median house price went up by fifty-eight thousand dollars in twenty twenty-one. Right. Well, guess what? The median income for the country is like forty-nine thousand dollars. Right. So, so this is a year when the median, you know, price of a house went up by more than the median income. Right. Which was basically a twenty percent increase in housing prices from like 370,000 to like 420 or something like that. And so this is where the Fed says, this is out of control. We can't have 20% year-on-year increases in home prices. And so uh, Jamie Diamond's talking about a financial hurricane. I'm going to say we're, we are 65% through the bear market. I think we have another 30% to go. It's going to be, going to be painful. It'll crescendo very likely in September or October as it does. And it'll crescendo, as I've been saying for several months, with all the big caps all you know falling down to their mean reverted levels. And, and so we could see Apple down at $95 or something like that. And I think if people are okay with like Apple at like $95 or something like that, or, or JP Morgan down another you know $30, that's fine. But what bothers me, and I, I think what's going to happen, and, and we're seeing it happening right now, I'm afraid that a a worst case scenario for me is a simultaneous downturn in the U.S. and the Chinese real estate markets at the same time. That's what really bothers me. That'll be very problematic. And frankly, I don't think there's anything cyclical around that because obviously they're they're two very nuanced markets and Obviously, the Chinese, the Chi- I, I probably make an argument the Chinese property market is less vulnerable to the global economy than, than what the US property market is. But I think the US property market works more on classic supply and demand dynamics where the Chinese property market is not certainly not orchestrated, but it's certainly much more heavily regulated and uh, manipulated than what other markets are. 
Mate, I know, you know, the Chinese property market is, I was about to say something you've been worried about for a while, but I don't know if that's fair. I think it's something which is... No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't because I'm a very big believer that as long as you're running current account surpluses, you're in total control of your domestic monetary situation. The, the problem is, is that China's current account surpluses are dwindling. And so basically, basically you're using up all your savings. And, and then when you do, when you use up all your savings, you don't have that firepower to fund your, your housing market unless you're a foreign borrowing. And, and if anything, China's going backwards. China's shutting down the, the foreign market in Hong Kong, right? China is chasing away the foreign, it's saying to foreign creditors who own a lot of these like Evergrande bonds and stuff like that to tough luck. And so essentially the foreign market for the Chinese property uh, sector is shut down in Hong Kong. And so I think now we're looking at a situation where the COVID you know, situation, we are looking at, you should see some of these volume drops. Some of the volumes in the major cities are down 60, 65%. The volume- In terms of property, property turnover, you mean? Property, correct. Property, the property volumes are really bad. They're like a, like a couple of decade lows. And so this looks really terrible. And, and of course, volumes always precede price falls. And of course, we're seeing a lot of the volume drop off in the U.S. as well. And we're seeing some of these prices coming off as well. And, and, and if you're these like self-hating Austrian Fed people and Wall Street people who are self-hating, self-flagellating Austrians who believe that everybody needs to be punished for something, God knows what psychiatric you know, um, syndrome that's called. But we have to punish the market and, and, and clean out the excesses, right? But when they don't have any idea what they're talking about in terms of, you know, what the, the real effect of, of quantitative tightening is on asset prices. Because if you want to go down that road, you can tip the whole thing over into a uh, deflationary recession. Because the reality is, as you and I both know, I mean, I've been doing banks for, you know, eons, and you got to have a supply of credit to make asset prices go up. Asset prices will only go down when the supply of credit dries up. It's not like, Asset prices stop going up when credit stops. That's not the way it works, right? Asset prices need a continuing flow of credit, right? The, the stock of credit is, is one thing. The flow of credit is another. If you want to do uh, unwind of QE and, and, and shrink the Fed's balance sheet, I, I think this is very problematic. Well, and let's be, let's be clear, Paul. Quantitative tightening has been going on for 48 hours. <laughs> I know, I know. That's what I keep saying. I said, when, when the market had, you know, destroyed itself of seven and a half trillion dollars of market cap. And that was in NASDAQ. That doesn't even count S&P and Dow. We had raised rates by 75 basis points and to still like historically low rates, by, by the way, right? Yeah. And there was no quantitative uh, tightening, right? But the, the, the Fed's balance sheet was barely unchanged. And, and you had a seven trillion dollar wipeout. I get a feeling, I think the Fed would, is is thinking, why can't we roll back that 20% uh, real estate hike that we saw in 2021 because we panicked because of Omicron. We didn't understand Omicron was just like a dud cold. Yep. And we flooded the market unnecessarily and life went on anyway. And so maybe we need to take that back. Well, good luck. Good, good luck trying to calibrate the US property market. Good luck with that one. So, well, I'm going to say... The thing that I find bewildering is the mixed views at around point and diametrically opposed camps of what people think is going to go on with the property market. And there is, again, I think of this stuff really simply, and I think you and I are sort of 
tar with the same brush here, is that if you, if you raise the cost of funding to buy a home, the rate of change for property markets globally has to be lower, right? You know, a five hundred thousand a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage has gone up by a hundred by eighteen by around eighteen thousand dollars per year, right? And yet there is another the school of thought which is really bullish on property, even with a high with higher mortgage costs or you know or declining affordability, is the notion that we will work from home going forward. That where there will be a need, there's a lack of supply, particularly in the European context. That in itself is going to be enough to keep property prices elevated, despite the fact we've got mortgage rates that have jumped by the most that we've probably seen in 40-odd years on a a year-on-year basis. Um, I just don't get it. I just don't understand the the arguments about that. And I think we've talked a little bit here about the whole work-from-home thing, and I see at the moment just a massive pushback against working from home. Again, I'm no, I'm no fan of Elon, but he did say something incredibly logical in the last in the last few days, which was, come back to work or resign. Do these dynamics about work from home, upgrades, tight supply, do they have merit? Yeah, I was just looking at some of these arguments the other day, and somebody put it really well. I, I think that the issue of supply, the issue of working from home, the issue of the outstanding number of mortgages out there and so forth mean everything's fine, right, Paul? And you and I know very, very smart people who make these claims. And I have to say to you, I haven't marshaled my arguments, but I'm starting to do that now because we're starting to have to think about this right about now because I think the U.S. housing market is turning over. And here's my experience of going back 30 years of endless bear markets I've seen. I've got third degree burns everywhere and like scars and and Frankenstein limbs attached from all of the catastrophes that you and I have seen since the 80s, starting with the Indonesian meltdown in 89 and 90 is my first bear market. I've heard 118 reasons why when the stock stock market crashes, the property market's going to be okay because, and and fill in the blank. I've heard 187,324 reasons why, oh, well, this, this won't happen to the property market because of this, because of this particular income dynamic or this particular supply dynamic or this particular mortgage rate dynamic or this particular government scheme that's in place or because the government won't let it. <laughs> How many times have you heard that one? The government's not going to let it. And so I'm just not a buyer. What bothers me the most about all of this is what a client pointed out to me, and that was that if you were really smart, and you saw this coming. And a lot of people didn't see the severity of it. But there were some smart people who cashed out all of their stock options into cash and bought property with their stock options. And, and that drove property prices crazy, especially in California. And guess what? Next round of, of stock options is not going to be there to buy off these, these people, right? You're going to have to buy. You're going to have to find somebody who's going to buy a property for a, over a two-year period for a 35% increase in price, and you're going to have to get an 80% mortgage for something that's 35% more expensive, where mortgage rates have doubled. Not very much increase as an income. Tell me how that math works out. And so I think the people who bought houses, they bought really good properties. This is one of those occasions, I think, in 10 years' time, the property price is going to be the same. 
Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to get excited about, about alt property in Austin, Texas, in property in San Francisco, obviously, is a big one. Now, even, even New York, to a lesser extent, it's hard to get excited about where the marginal buyer is coming from. Right. I can make a case like in the Midwest where there's a big boom in agricultural prices and you can get like, you know, a big boom in like Omaha, Nebraska or Iowa or Ohio. Fine. You can call those the vowel states, all the states that begin with a vowel. And that's fine. I, I think that that works. But Miami, L.A., Austin, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Denver. I mean, come on. Denver's had a huge run up on a tech boom that sort of is, is just not sort of, it's just not coming to fruition. And look, I mean, you've been making this point for, you've been making this point for months. I mean, the Kathy Wood universe, which one could argue is a proxy for those option-laden property purchases, is looking at that as an index, right, has been falling since February of last year. Now, admittedly, these things do work with a lag, but something does have to give if you've got stock options that are now 60, 70, 80% out of the money, Right, that are not going, that are going to basically potentially expire, worthless, or can't be exercised. Again, there are flow-on effects, and I think that I certainly have been more focused on sort of the the economic destruction driven by the the hit to real incomes and the bottom seventy percent of income earners, right, because of high food prices and the like. Wealth effects, wealth effects matter, and whilst you know, whilst restaurants in New York and London are still are still busy and booming, and that's yeah. what proxy for things eventually something will give in terms of in terms of property big ticket items i think the art world has an issue the art world is is correlated to the nasdaq i don't think it's any coincidence that the collapse in the nft markets are part of this as well right i think and you've talked about this uh and you've talked about this a lot so again you know you couple this you know you you know in previous in previous disinflationary cycles I don't want to sort of dismiss the challenges of the bottom 50% of income earners, but you've never really, they've always had their struggles and it never got exponentially worse for folks in median incomes and less. Today's probably the worst it's been in 40 years, and that's driven 100% by inflation. But you couple that now with the wealth effect that you're facing with property prices, which again, at best have peaked, right? At best have peaked. Yeah, Uh yeah. And then secondly, obviously, that someone was saying to me, it's the worst start to a year in bond markets since 1873. I looked, I went back on Bloomberg about <laughs> 1940. So obviously, I, I obviously paid for the chief data feed on that one. Um, so I can't get back to 1780 uh, odd. But again, the worst start in equity since 1970, plus throw in the bond destruction. You've got you know, net, the net wealth of the average top 20% of uh, asset holders is probably down somewhere at least 20% on the year, right? Yeah. yeah that yeah, has, to yeah, spend, yeah. has to crimp spending in all its forms. And then for, I think, for many millions, probably somewhere between 7 and 10 million who are playing around in a lot of these, like, small cap, mid cap, Kathy Wood crap, they're down 40, 50. They, you know, as one of my clients pointed out, it's the closed envelope. You just put your 401k in the drawer without looking at it because you don't even want to pay attention to it. Now, interestingly, Morningstar took a blowtorch to Kathy Wood this last week and basically trashed ARC and said that it was being managed irresponsibly. There was no risk management. There was random stock picking and downgraded it to basically avoid. That's a big deal for Morningstar to do something like that. And what's interesting about that fund is it peaked at $40 billion. And it now is at 18, which is larger than most hedge funds in America. 
And so we got a lot, a long ways to go down uh, potentially for Kathy Woods Holdings. So that's something to watch. Well, and again, uh, but you throw in the mix that you've got, you know, guys who are sort of, do- you know, you speak sort of doyens of that, of that growth equity world. I mean, you know, came out again today that Chase Coleman dropped another close to 15% in May for uh, for Tiger Global, which puts them down well north of 50% on the year. And that's before we do anything with Q2, with Q2 marks in venture capital, which are from all reports, from everyone I speak to in the VC space, they're down another 20% come. And the growth venture equity is down another 20% in Q2. Tiger Global was a was a hundred billion dollar fund and it's down to sub, I think it's down to sub, sub well, sub, well, sub, well, sub 40. Kathy Wood was a what a forty billion dollar the ETF the ARC was a forty billion dollar product and now it's what 15, 18. 18, right you know and ironically Bill when Bill the peak of the Kathy Wood funds was Bill Wang who for those of you who don't know was the was the was the Archios uh, Archios fraud back in back in February of last year who was also one of the seed investors in Kathy Wood's fund and his shenanigans happened to coincide with the peak of assets under management for. Kathy Wood, just coincidentally. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I, I think we have more of this to go. I, I think that we only wish that that the Fed had more than one hammer, right? There was a good article I was reading today that basically said we wish the Fed had a multiple hammers here, but we only have one hammer, right? Which is the Fed funds rate. And I, I just I worry that there's so many different you know moving parts here that the Fed's going to have a very hard time trying to get this landing correct because we have really bad inflationary pressure. We have inflationary pressure caused by the cartelization of American and the concentration of American industry, which is a very inflationary thing nobody's talking about. We have the, the, the tens of millions of tons of agricultural goods sitting in facilities near wherever Odessa that, that are trying to get out of Ukraine to get to Africa, including like 20 million tons of grain, which Russia has embargoed essentially. And we have, we have an increasing number of violent civil wars that are putting pressure on infrastructure and delivery of services and goods all through Africa, increasingly in Southeast Asia, and certainly in, in, increasingly in Latin America as well. And so I worry that we have some structural issues that need to be addressed that interest rates aren't going to, to work with. So if you're trying to get aggregate demand down in order to meet a calcified supply because of concentration issues, war, and so forth, you're, you're going to do a lot of pain to the economy to bring that demand down to a sort of a calcified, unresponsive supply structure. It's not just a logistical issue here. Uh, the concentration of industry in America is at one of its most extreme in many, many decades. And so these guys have something called pricing power. Mm. And uh, you think of every one of the major companies on the NASDAQ, they're the monopolies, right? And you think of the car industry, you think of um, the food industry, you think of on and on, right? The, the shoe industry, even the shoe industry is kind of a cartel now, right? That was never, ever a cartel, ever in history. And the Fed, the St. Louis Fed was the one who published this paper last week on the cartelization and the concentration of U.S. industry. And so I think we're going to struggle with a uh, simultaneous downturn in property between the U.S. and China. And I I still think the Fed's going to do a U-turn, and the U-turn is going to be signaled by negative rates. I still think negative rates are going to turn negative probably in the fall 
And that's when the Fed's going to have to turn around and start to um, make some excuses about why they need to increase the balance sheet. But how do you have a scenario where rates go negative at the front end of the curve if cash rates, if official rates are at 100, 100, well, sorry, by June, they'll be 150 basis points? Fine, then then you're going to have like the steepest yield curve in the world on on the short end. And then on the long end, you're going to have an inverted curve. So it's going to look super weird, right? You're going to have an extremely steep yield curve up to 90 days, and then it'll be inverted from 90 out to 10 years or whatever, two years to 10 years. And so, but, but, but don't forget what Powell said in his testimony, pay attention from one to 90, pay attention to that. He did not say that by accident. Right. He said, pay attention to the one day to the 90 day curve. Pay attention there uh, because we. I think it's very possible when the head of the largest bank in America is talking about a hurricane, we should pay attention. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just because he felt like he was having a bad day or he had a hangover or. He's been quite bearish for a while now. Right. And again, not to saying he's been wrong or premature or anything like that, but he's he tends to be of all the the major bank CEOs, the most sort of reserved or the most sort of um, downplays economic prosperity a lot in terms of the forecast. Because frankly, he's in the business of doing that, right? So it's managing, it's all about managing expectations. But look, word, phrasing like a pending hurricane is is extreme. And yet you haven't really seen that in credit quality as yet. You haven't had the deterioration in credit quality, which obviously for me is the next shoot to fall. Yeah, well, I mean, Paul, we saw that first the first quarter. The first quarter was the first quarter in many, many years we've started to have credit costs going up. And so uh, we just have to watch that very carefully. I, I do think we're going away from income issues and net interest margin issues for the banks toward a credit cost issues. But don't forget, and I've been saying this, you know, the U.S. banks are the best reserved in the world. And they're the best reserves in like 50 years. And the U.S. banks have the lowest level of, of leverage. Uh, in 50 years. So, so the U.S. banks are in really good shape. J.P. Morgan's stock price went way ahead of everybody else's, and now it's it's sort of mean reverting like everybody else. Mm. And the problem, of course, that we have in America is that the debt, the, the, the credit risk was transferred from the private sector in 2008 to the public sector, right? Fannie Mae became a, was put in receivership. That was the U.S. housing market. And the U.S. debt went up gee, uh, uh, only $10 trillion in like mm-hmm. nine years. And so right now we have the sovereign debt is the, is the, is the issue. But if you're borrowing from yourself at 1% or 2%, keep on borrowing, baby. Jack Dorsey made a, sent a tweet out talking about how, uh, how the, US, the US dollar has lost its global influence and hegemony, and it's complete bullshit, right? Because again, the dollar's probably not been in this stronger position in in, in a very lo- in a very long time. And again, mate, the, a one way for me, a one way ticket to to financial bank to bankruptcy is to short moral hazard and to believe that the U.S. has no debt and sorry has too much debt. And statements like "We'll eventually have to pay back this debt." No, we don't. No government's been running. Have been running. There is very. I, is there is there a country in the world? Does Liechtenstein have? Is that a country with no debt? Countries run debt, and they run debt because it is a smart way to manage your economy, right, is to have outstanding sovereign debt. That's how stuff gets built and stuff gets paid for. So the notion that the United States has to pay back its debt over time is complete and utter rubbish. It just has to be managed in the context of an interest rate cycle GDP per capita. As long as 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 we can meet our commitments, there's no problem with having 
debt and and frankly quite a bit of it. Yeah, no, I agree. And and so you look at the major currencies around the world, right? Is the pound overvalued? Probably. Is the euro overvalued? A little bit. Is is the RMB overvalued? You bet. Is the yen overvalued? Probably not. No, probably, probably not. Overvalued. The real is probably overvalued. The Middle East currency is overvalued. I mean, so so what are we looking at here? We're looking at a, a currency is all only a currency relative to others, and so. Generally speaking, if we look at the, the the dollar basket, it's either it's either uh, fairly valued or overvalued against the dollar, right? And so the dollar's value should be going should be going up. And, so, and I, I worry about the RMB. The RMB is it could get quite weak here, so we'll have to see what's going on. Man, well, I wouldn't. I just want to bring up one thing, and I know we will run over a little over time, but I do want to bring this up. A conversation I had last night about about MMT and. If you think about what we have been through, if you're an advocate for MMT, and I'll explain what I don't like about MMT in a second, which, but if you look at MMT since March of, March of 2020, you can argue that MMT did its job, right? Now, the frustrating thing for those who are supportive of MMT is all the MMT advocates are now turning around and saying, giving us reasons why inflation occurred, when what they should be saying is, MMT worked, we just took it too far and and created too much inflation because we spent too much money. And what we should be doing now, if we are true MMT advocates, is to dial back, dial back spending to bring back to bring back inflation back into a into a normal range. You can make a very valid argument that MMT proved to work during the course of the last of the last several years. And actually it worked too well because we spent too much money. Now, the reasons I don't mind, normally like MMT is because the MMT advocates have never properly explained what happens to the dollar in the event of all this spending. Now, if I'm being intellectually honest about this, Paul, MMT worked because the dollar didn't depreciate. You know, so you can spend all this money, you can print all this money and you can have all this spending and have enough to create inflation without there being a really detrimental impact on the dollar. I, I'd love your thoughts on this because, again, I don't, I don't like MMT ideologically and the like, but I think about this, if I'm rational about this, MMT worked in the last couple of years. I don't buy it at all because I think, I think MMT's bit was thrown out the window in 2008 because of this little teeny tiny part of the equation that is utterly absent in all of the foundations of MMT, which is credit. MMT assumes credit is there, right? And guess what happens when credit isn't there? Deflationary depressions. And second of all, MMT never took into account quantitative easing and the way in which quantitative easing creates tremendous amounts of base money, right, on the balance sheet of the Fed in order to create positive rates, right? Because if rates are turning negative, you have to reduce the, the quantity, right, to make the price go up. And so the quantity of money is pulled out of the system and put into the Fed. And then the Fed just buys government bonds and drives down yields. That's not part of MMT. There's nowhere in any, any modern economics book of anybody close to Chicago that ever, ever discussed this. And so, so I, I call rubbish on this. And I think that, 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 that people just barely understand the dynamics of, 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 of balance sheet, of Fed balance sheet dynamics. And I, I only was forced to because I made myself, because I became good friends with the, the, the liaison of the IMF to central banks, and I read his book. 
books. And I, I, I brought him to Hong Kong to visit clients out of my own pocket. And his name is Peter. What's Peter's last name? I'll think of it in a minute. But, but Peter was the, the guy who was one of the experts in the world on this. And I, I told you this. I asked Peter, I said, Peter, give me three examples of countries that have worked their way out of quantitative easing. And he said, long, long pause, because he was doing this 25 years in 2008. He said, I can think of three, Nicaragua, Lebanon, and Philippines. And I'm like, that's not very promising, Peter. I would like to know like more grown-up countries that work their way um, out of quantitative easing than like economic basket cases. And he said, well, that's all I've got for you right now. And the last one was the Philippines in 1990. That was the latest. That's the latest example. Correct. <laughs> we don't have that. And, and, and Paul, how many times has Japan tried to end quantitative easing in the last 20 years since we've been looking at it? They tried to end quantitative easing every two years since 1995. And they, they don't know how to do it. And now yeah. the debt to GDP is at 200%. And it hasn't been a problem because of demographic deflation. And I think that's eventually where we go back to in the European context, particularly Europe. And I think to a lesser extent, the US is that, you know, one of the things about structural inflation that often gets pushed aside is, that, is the notion that the Western world didn't get any younger during COVID. Right. Europe is still Europe is still an old aging society with very Japan-like demographic profiles. The US is not not that far behind it. China is demographics depreciating, you know, deteriorating rapidly. And these are all these issues. And again, if you're a if you're a country with poor demographics, you're never getting out of QE, right? Because you're just not going to have the growth pro structural growth profiles to get out of QE. And I think it's all very fair. So, but no, I think I think that there's. It was a very good debate to have about whether the the fiscal policy responses, which again the MMT advocates wouldn't would believe would say to you, you don't need, you never need to do QE anyway. We don't. Well, you don't have you don't need to issue treasury bonds anyway as part of uh, a part of a theoretical MMT framework. So it's nonsense because that, that, that then you'll end up with like negative three percent rates. I mean, that's the idiocy of MMT where they say, well, this can't happen because this is part of our, you know, theoretical foundation of our assumptions. Well, great. You know, you make when you assume you make an ass out of you and me, come on, right? When you have negative rates, the central banks have to act to reduce those negative rates. The only way they do that is to reduce the quantity of the money. When the quantity of money is reduced, the price goes up. It's like apples and oranges and everything else. Right. And, so, and, and and that money can't just sit there. That money has to be pumped into the asset side of the balance sheet by definition. It's a balance sheet. The governments can either buy public sector things or private sector things. Japan has gone on to buy risk assets. Japan's bought everything. I think the U.S. is going to start doing that. I think I, I have always believed the Federal Reserve is going to end up buying private sector assets in the not too in the, in the next five years, I, I truly believe. That. Well, they, but they've already done that, right? They've already they've already bought, bought investment grade credits, some high yield back in well, uh, through yeah. through BlackRock. I mean, it was like <laughs> it was it's Mr. Powell here. Can you buy us some? You know, right? And so it, it was BlackRock, with the fourth branch of government, who bought all that high yield debt to bring down the high yield spreads. And, and and that's to me like you're, it's eighty five degrees in the room. If you don't like the temperature, change the thermometer, right? make the thermometer say 72. And that's exactly what Larry Fink did with high yield yep. in uh, in 2020 was, if you don't like the temperature, change the thermostat and just buy high yield credit. Now, look at those things. I was looking at that today. Look at those uh, intermediate bond uh, ETF and the high yield ETF. They've all collapsed back to what they did in 2020. 
Nobody's buying those. Mm. That is really bad. Everybody owns those intermediate bond and sort of the higher quality and uh, junk, the investment grade stuff. That's all down. Those are like ETFs that are income ETFs. They're down 20%. You just lost five years of income yep. in like the last four months. And I'm very surprised no one's talking about that because I look at that very carefully. But spreads have not widened to anywhere near where they were in previous crisis levels. And that's the, and that's the scary thing for me, going back to the, the original part of the conversation about why this is probably no more than a bear market rally, because if you do have some sort of move where spreads go from 450 over to 800 over, then there's probably 20% plus downside in the S&P from here. That's because of the real estate market doing what we think it might do. If the real estate market stabilizes, that won't happen. Yep. Much like in 2000, 2001, when the NASDAQ crashed, we had a minor recession, not very much happened to credit spreads because it, it was an equity it was an equity phenomenon. We have to look at the, the hidden leverage. And, and this is what I, I want to get to right now before we break off and we can talk about it next week. One of my clients brought it up. Who's one of the largest marginal owners of property in America? The hedge funds. <laughs> they bought a zillion dollars worth of property and yep. believe me, they didn't use cash. Hedge funds don't do that. They yep. use leverage to buy massive tracts of homes all over the country, in Florida, in the East Coast, New Jersey, New York, California, all over the place. And so we need to figure out where the hidden leverage is with these hedge funds and private equity funds. Who are well, Blackstone, Blackstone, Blackstone is a huge, was a huge buyer of multifamily homes over the course of the last 10 years, an enormous owner of that stuff. Yeah. Your week is, you're traveling from when? I start traveling next week, a uh, couple of days in Paris, and then three days in London, and then a week in Toronto seeing clients, and then going to this quite good collision. This, uh, the, the, it's, the, it's one of the best tech conferences in the world. And I, I want to go and sit there and just listen to whether people, whether reality is settling in yet. I like to just sit there and take it all in and see where people are at. I I had a friend of mine who just went to a a, uh, crypto conference in Singapore and he made the point that there is no reality setting in in the crypto space. (laughs) I just did a crypto panel the other day in Singapore and I can agree with that. (laughs) Mate, have a great trip. We'll chat to you next week. Okay, bye. 